Why would we be celebrating this day? This is a day where we just acknowledge something happened that was horrific. And then we just wait for two more days, three days. We get to Easter morning. We get to Resurrection Sunday because He's risen. And that's coming, as Pastor Joe said. Sunday's a coming. But we don't want to skip over Friday. Otherwise, I think we miss the importance of everything that Jesus did. You know, I've, um, I said this on Sunday morning. I said, I'm inviting you to come to a funeral. A memorial, if you will. And so you're here at a memorial, and the memorial is for Jesus. I thought about this. What was the last invitation you got to a memorial service or a funeral service? You know, and maybe for some of you, you're going, actually, it's kind of recent. I still remember it. It still aches in my heart. It was somebody I dearly loved. You know, how you felt about when you got the invitation and you thought, oh, invitation, invitation to remember someone who's died. You know, just a question for you. I asked myself this question. Have you ever turned down the invitation to a memorial service or a funeral? I know I have. I've, uh, sometimes I've had to just because of distance. Maybe a family member's passed away on the other side of the country and I just can't physically get there for that memorial service. Or I was thinking about it, sometimes the distance is really a factor. Even my own father, I wasn't at his funeral on the other side of the planet in India. It's just a matter of distance. And I had seen him three weeks before he passed away and I just couldn't make another trip over for his funeral. You know, we live in a culture that's very death averse. In other words, I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about death. And then death happens and it's so shocking because we work so hard to push it away. We live in a, in the type of culture where a person can think of it from maybe a child's perspective. Hey, there's grandpa. And then a few days later, Hey, listen, grandpa went to go be with Jesus. Wait, I was just, I was just talking to grandpa. And then the very next thing the child sees of grandpa, if they see anything, is at a memorial service. And if there's not an open casket and the casket is closed and then it's typically a picture, a large one. And you see like those, how shocking that can be. This idea of I was just with them and now they're, they're not here anymore. I think there's other cultures in our world where death, um, death happens more in front of them. And it actually happens so often that death isn't something that they're averse to, some other cultures. It just becomes something that's part of life. In other words, death is part of life. And I think in our culture, we could use a little bit more of death being a part of life because I think that would change the way we live our lives. I think if we lived knowing that death is coming, we would live our lives differently. We wouldn't be surprised and we would value life, the life that God has given to us. So tonight we're going to look at the life and death of one that's very loved by many of us here, Jesus, the Christ. And tonight, if it causes you a little bit of pain and discomfort as we read some of these verses, I have to tell you this, it's normal. Especially when you realize the reason that he had to endure such torture. He had to endure it because of what you did and because of what I did. That should cause us a little bit of discomfort. You shouldn't just be like, oh yeah, yeah, he died. You realize why he died, right? 
Just take a mirror and look at it. I have to do the same for myself. He died because of what I did. That should have some response in me. So the title of this morning's message is What Love Looks Like. Let's pray. And we're going to be looking through some of the um, events that led up to Jesus on the cross. Papa, as we come before you on this good Friday, we thank you that you've drawn all of us here. We thank you that as we've come to gather to remember Jesus and his death, Father, we thank you that you set the stage for it to happen. You anticipated our sin and you provided a sacrifice to take our place. How precious was the sacrifice that was given for us. This evening I pray at the end of a work week, I pray we would slow down to consider Jesus, His life and His death. We love you, Father. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It started way back in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Oh, if you, if you brought your Bibles tonight, we're going to be looking in John chapter 12. So if you want to turn to John chapter 12, you can follow along. There'll be verses on the screen as well. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it all started back then. Satan in the garden, Adam and Eve sinning. God makes a statement and we see it here. God speaking to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as that verse is up there, let me kind of paraphrase that in more modern language. I, God, will put hostility between you, Satan, and Eve. Hostility between your child and Eve's child. The one who comes from Eve, his name is Jesus, will crush your head and you will wound his heel. All the way in the first book of the Bible, in the third chapter, it is already foretold that Satan will be defeated. He's going to have his head crushed by the offspring of Eve. The one that is to come. And so, in human history now, Satan had been, he heard God say it to him personally, and at this point, throughout human history, Satan has been trying to prevent his head crushing from happening. And he tried, and he tried, as he deceives, as he lies, as he manipulates, and he's so good at it, he tried so hard, but he couldn't prevent Jesus from being born He couldn't prevent Jesus from living and he couldn't prevent Jesus from dying. You got to understand, Satan didn't want Jesus to die. Satan would have been just glad if Jesus came, said some really nice words and then just left. But Jesus came to die. In John chapter 12, verse 23 to 33 Jesus was speaking about a time that was coming and he said for before this time, he would say, my hour isn't here. My hour hasn't come. My hour hasn't come. But in John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knew what his purpose was. And Jesus used that picture of a grain of wheat. Jesus is saying if you put it on a shelf, the grain of wheat preserves itself. It's not going anywhere. It's fine. But unless it's put in the ground and in essence dies, it can't bear fruit. So death is required for fruit to come. And then Jesus was speaking of himself. I have to die so that there will be fruit in your life. If we could jump down to verse 31 in John 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Fulfilling the verse we read in Genesis 3.15. We're going to crush Satan's head. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And it says he said this to show of what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up above the earth. I will be your sacrifice. I will fulfill what was written in Genesis. Jesus wasn't accidentally killed. Jesus wasn't drugged to the cross. Jesus went there under his own power of his full choice because of love. It's because of his love for you and I that he endured everything that happened on his way to the cross. His pain is our gain. So I want tonight... For us to look at something, and this is the aspect I want us to look at, how historically it was foretold that Jesus was going to come and die and how he accomplished exactly what was foretold. On Sunday morning, this last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, I told you the reason I'm a Christian is because of the evidence that history has shown that God knows the future. And he knows the future tens of years Hundreds of years, and even tonight, a thousand years before the events happen, they've been foretold. In Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is called the Psalm of the Cross. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm written by David, and as he was writing and composing this, the Holy Spirit gave him the words to describe what the Messiah was going to go through in the future. This was written... This psalm was written 1,000 years before Jesus hung on a cross. How in the world do you describe an event 1,000 years ahead of time unless you are outside of time? Not only that, this event describes crucifixion and it's 400 years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 22 describes crucifixion 400 years before it was invented by the Assyrians. Psalm 22 Verse 1, you may have recognized this verse. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, that's the music to which it would be played, a psalm of David, David wrote it. Maybe you've heard these words before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pause, just a second. If you remember, 
Those were words that Jesus spoke from the cross 1,000 years in the future. And I have heard people who have mocked that statement and have just been like, look, see, the Father turned His back on Jesus. What a waste Christianity is. Jesus calls out to His dad. His dad totally ignores Him. Remember that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I actually heard that on HSU's campus once. As someone was sharing the gospel, I was just kind of sitting back, listening, at, looking at the crowd and listening and praying for the person speaking. And, you know, you definitely had people that were mocking what was being said. And one of the things that were said was, oh, yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, you can't trust God. He's going to fail you. The problem is that person and people who bring up that statement, they don't realize Jesus was, listen, singing the first lines to a song. Could you imagine from the cross? I don't know what the tune was. My God, my God. He's singing. You know what? A Jew would have understood the song. It's kind of like songs here at church. Like you start to sing the first verse and if you know the song, all it takes is like half a verse and you're in it, right? Jesus, my God, my God. He's worshiping God by singing a psalm written a thousand years earlier. Let's read the rest of the music, shall we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers entrusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and they were not put to shame. So we'll leave that up on the screen for just a second. Jesus was singing the first few lines of this song. And it speaks about how calling out to God, God didn't answer. And then it goes to, but you know, our forefathers, they trusted you, you delivered them. They cried out to you, they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. Hey, it's all sounding good so far. God does take care of people. And then the next verse in the song, Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Yes, Father, you took care of those that came before. You took care of them. They called out to you. You answered them. But I am a worm and not a man. And then the song goes on. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they say this, look what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Keep those words in mind. The ones that are in the quotes in verse 8 of Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. (laughs) What a fool. Because those words were spoken 1,000 years later by people who are looking at Jesus. And if you don't believe me, Matthew's Gospel talks about it. Matthew 27, verse 39 through 43. And those who passed by, as he's on the cross, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41 
so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Oh, he's going to rise again. And you know what? There's still going to be those that don't believe in him. Because their heart is hard towards Jesus. But look at this next and last verse here. Matthew 27, verse 43. Look at this, what they said about Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That's what Psalm 22 said a thousand years earlier. For he said, I am the son of God. I want you to understand that God wants us to know that he's real. And the way he does that is by things like this. How can you manipulate the words of your mockers to line up with exactly the song lyrics from a thousand years earlier that prophesied of how the Messiah would die? And Jesus was brutalized. Like, he wasn't just beaten up and just bruised and then everything was fine. He was brutalized. We have a word that none of us should use when we really think about what the word means. The word is excruciating. You and I should not use that word, even though I have used that word, because I don't think about it. Excruciating means from the cross, excrucio. It means the kind of pain that comes from the cross, of which none of us have or will ever experience. Only Jesus experienced excruciating pain. Isaiah the prophet wrote, 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. In Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, and look at his appearance. Isaiah writes about what Jesus will look like after he was brutalized in the excruciating pain. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He didn't really look like a human being. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was so badly brutalized that you had a hard time looking at a quivering lump of flesh to think that that would be a human being. And that happened to him because of you and me. There's no getting around that. He did nothing wrong to deserve anything that he got. You know, Jesus had these statements in the Gospel of John. They're called the I Am statements. There were seven of them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Jesus had seven I am statements in the book of John. But I think now when we look at Psalm 22, verse 6, we see that there's one more I am statement. And in Psalm 22, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. You think about it as God enthroned in glory, humbled himself already to become a man. But now Jesus says prophetically the song writing about him, but I am a worm and not a man. 
So I humbled myself to become a man, but now I'm not even a man. I'm a worm. I'm below even mankind. Now, now the Bible doesn't use accidental words. Well, maybe he's just saying, you know, because I'm lowly. And we think of a worm and we're thinking of like uh, this earthworm. I want to show you what he would have been talking about. There is this worm. It doesn't look like an earthworm at all. Its scientific name, Cocos illicus. Cocos illicus. It also goes by the nickname, the crimson worm. Now you're just going, that looks like a berry on a tree. That's not a berry. That's, it's more like a grub. It's like this thing that you're just like, what? It's a thing that if you did applied any type of force upon it, it's got no skeleton. It's just going to mush and goo and no longer be. And a thousand years before Jesus died, David wrote a psalm that said, speaking of the Messiah, but I am a worm. Specific word, this one right here. And not a man. And so we look and it's just one of those where you go, wow, that's beautiful. No, nah, it's not. I wouldn't say that's beautiful. Beautiful. That's, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But I, there's nothing about that. Once you told me that's a worm and not a fruit, I'm just going to be like, yeah, that's fine. I'm glad. I'm sure they exist for a reason. But uh, that's um, beautiful is not the word that I'm going to use. But let me tell you about the life cycle of this Cocos illicus. When the female worm is ready to lay her eggs, it only happens once in her life. She climbs up a tree or a fence, attaches herself to it, or in this one, to some leaves. She particularly likes a specific type of oak tree. And then when the worm's body is attached to the wood, a hard crimson shell forms around her. A shell so hard and so secured to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would kill the worm. So this worm, when it picks the spot where it's going to attach itself once in its lifetime, it secures itself, gets a hard shell that turns crimson red and cannot be removed from that wood. The female crimson worm Cocos illicus, under the protective shell, lays her eggs under her body. And when the larvae hatch, those baby worms are born, they remain under the protective shell and feed off of the living body of the mother worm for three days. Then the mother worm dies and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood on which she was attached to and also stains her babies for the rest of their life. They remain crimson colored for their entire life. On day four, the tail of the mother worm pulls back up into her body and into her head and it causes a bulging that looks like a heart. And it no longer is crimson on the fourth day. On the fourth day, it turns this snow-white, waxy color. And then it flakes off and it drops to the ground looking like snow. Psalm 22, verse 6, written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised 
by the people. Do you understand what Jesus did for us? Where he came to this earth and he said, I choose to do this and it will cost me my life, my life for their life. Who's their life? To the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. And for Jesus to put his protective shell around us and then to say, feast on me. I will be your strength. I will be your nourishment. I will be your sacrifice. I will die so that you can live. And then when you've received my death for your salvation, you will be a blood-washed, crimson-coated Christian for the rest of your life. Life where? Here? Life everlasting. There's nothing accidental written in the Bible. You know, in Isaiah 1 verse 18, also written 700 years before the crucifixion, the writer of Isaiah says, come now, let, let's reason together. Like, let's reason, let's, let's work this through here, okay? Says the Lord. Though your, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We are washed by the blood of Jesus and that blood washes us clean of all of our sin. You see this crimson, so then the idea of like, okay, this crimson bug, what's the big deal? The word for that bug the crimson worm that we looked at, that insect or that grub, they would gather and harvest them and they would crush them. And as they crushed them, they would use that because it was a very, very powerful dye. So there's the shell that was outside of the mother there who's died and there's the eggs inside. And those will all get crushed And they're harvested for their red dye with which they would dye garments, clothing, and other things. And it's this vibrant, bright red color. In fact, that red color has been used many places. It was used in the Old Testament to make the red in the tabernacle. Over and over again, you'll see this crimson or scarlet. Uh, That's where they would have gotten it from. They would have gotten those grubs, crushed them, and used them to make this dye. But then later in the events of Good Friday, Jesus was taken by Roman soldiers and an entire garrison of soldiers were brought around him. It's a place called Antonio's Fortress or the Praetorium. I had a chance to go see this spot. And on this spot, on the floor, there are still carvings of the games that the Roman soldiers would play. And Antonio's fortress is still there and you can see the pavement stones where Jesus would have been beaten. And you can see the games that were etched into the floor of this place. One of the games that they played was called Basilius. Basilius is also known as the game of kings. And so Jesus was there. Jesus was there. And here's the premise. You throw a dice and you advance a series of boxes or circles on this board, on the ground. And whoever's the first person to get to the king's tower in the center is the winner and then is elected the king. And everybody else then has to obey his command. In a way, it's kind of like a game of truth and dare at that point. So historians noted that this game 
came from a pagan Saturnalia worship festival where there was a scapegoat that was selected by a lot. And the goat would be decorated and dressed up as this mock king, this scapegoat, where we get the word scapegoat. And they would be taunted, tortured, and sacrificed. And so the Romans are playing this game based on this other game that had a scapegoat in it. And in the Romans' version of this game, this basilicus, the winner of every round of the game would get to choose a different way to torture the prisoner. This included dressing the prisoner up as a king and in turn mocking and abusing their victim before they executed him. And they did this so that it would desensitize the Roman soldiers to the cruelty that they were doing because they were just playing a game. Ah, you won this round. What do you want to do to that person right there? What do you want to do? Oh, you want to put a, put a bag on their head and then just go and then hit them so they can't see where the blow's coming from or prepare for it? That sounds great. That's great. Because you're the king. You won that round. Let's play again. It's just a game. It's just a game as Jesus is being brutalized. On these pavement stones, there's three different stones there that have this letter B that signifies this uh, Basilius game. And that word Basilius means king. And so they're mocking their prisoner, making them a mock king. But little did they know that the game that they were playing involved a scapegoat. And the ultimate scapegoat was Jesus. Jesus was mocked, derided, dressed up to be a king, and then sent off to be killed. Jesus is our ultimate scapegoat. In 2 Corinthians 5.21... Paul says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you come to Tellius, you've heard me use this phrase, the unfair exchange. This is such an unfair exchange. If I can paraphrase that verse that's right there, as you look at that verse, let me read it. For our sake the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. What an unfair exchange. Jesus takes all of our sin on him. He becomes the target of all of that wrath, all of that judgment. And what do we get in exchange? We get the righteousness of God. How unfair is that? He did nothing wrong and he gets all of our sin and gets punished for it. I did everything wrong and I get God's righteousness in exchange. This shows you when people say, well, God doesn't love people. That's a lie. God sent his only son to absorb all the sin of mankind for all that would receive him as their sacrifice. And then that takes us to this verse in Isaiah that is hard to believe because we don't understand this kind of love. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Let that rest there. It was God's will that Jesus would be crushed for you. Someone has to pay. If we want to, if we want justice, if we want things to be taken care of, then there has to be a judgment. And God said, my son will absorb all of the judgment. So church, in light of Jesus' sacrifice, we are going to remember what he did on the cross for us. We are going to receive communion, the Lord's Supper. And as the worship team comes up here and as the men go and prepare to distribute the communion elements, in light of Jesus' sacrifice, Him putting His protective shell over us, Him 
absorbing all of the wrath of God that should have been directed towards me and to you, how should we respond? Should this just be another Friday? Should tomorrow just be another Saturday? Should Sunday just be another Sunday? Should we just live this short life we have? Like, ah, it's good. I'm glad God sent his son to die for me. I think if we stop and realize someone died for you, What does that mean for me? How should I respond to the person who died? And how should I respond to the person who gave that person to die for me? If you went to a funeral service, you were given an invitation, like I started this message with. And it said, you're invited to this funeral service. And you are like, this is going to be hard. Why is it going to be hard? Because when you open it up, you see the name. And the name is the name of a person who saved your life. And in saving your life, their life was taken. And you've been invited to their funeral. That is the story of Good Friday. You've been given the invitation to the person who gave his life for you so that you might live. You know, I think in light of his sacrifice, our hearts should be very honest before God. We, each one of us, we should never ask God for his justice on us. We should ask instead of what David said in Psalm 51, verse 1 through 3. Have mercy on me, O God. Not have justice on me. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And this is what you can expect. If you ask God to forgive you of your sins, well, I don't know, I'm going to flip a coin. Will he today forgive me? Or maybe he won't forgive me today. I'm going to give you this promise from God's word that if you come to him with your heart seeking his forgiveness, seeking to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, here's how God will respond to you. First John nine, first John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we've been given, we're given this choice on this Good Friday. I know most of you are Christians, but we have folks listening on the radio and listening on the internet. And maybe you're here and you're not a believer. You haven't received the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I encourage you to consider Jesus. I encourage you to consider somebody who was foretold a thousand years before that was going to come for you and pay for you. Jesus' last words on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. Sometimes people ask, what does teleos mean? Teleos is a form of the last words that Jesus said on the cross. When Jesus said as he hung on the cross and as he breathed his last breath, as he was asphyxiating, because he couldn't catch his breath anymore. And as he hung there laboring under the weight of not just the physical pain, under the pain and the weight of my sin and your sin and the sins of the whole world, as he was under that extreme pain, he said, it is finished, tetelestai, meaning I finished what I came to do. The work of the cross is finished. If you look at the cross now, Jesus isn't on it. He died once and for all for our sins. 
And so for us as the Telios Christian Fellowship, we are not a perfect church, but we are a church that recognizes that we're complete because Jesus completed the work on the cross. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes here as we remember this. And as you're here tonight on this Good Friday, maybe you've come to lots of Easter services and Resurrection Sunday services, but you haven't come to a Good Friday service. And then as you think about your life, you live what you would think is a moral life. You're better than most people. You're hoping God has a scale and will weigh your good works versus your bad works, and you're hoping that you'll come out on top. Dear friend, I just have to tell you, that's not how it works. A perfect God cannot have imperfection come into his presence. A perfect God cannot abide with, live with, be united with someone who's imperfect. And so, dear friends, I just have to ask you, have you ever done one single thing wrong in your life? Because that's all it takes. And it doesn't even have to be an action. It can just be a thought. If you have even committed one sin in your life, then you cannot, of your own good works, be right before God. God knew that and loved you so much that He already planned in the book of Genesis to send His Son so that you would have a chance to receive His sacrifice for you. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned in His thoughts, in His actions, or in His words. He died so that you would have a substitute, so that He could be your scapegoat. But you have to receive Him as your scapegoat. You have to accept Him. You have to humble yourself and accept Him as your scapegoat, as your sacrifice. And if you do, He takes your sin and you become righteous in the eyes of God. Will you receive Jesus to be your Lord and Savior on this Good Friday? The one who was lifted high for the sins of the world, for my sins and your sins. If you're here this evening, we have our heads bowed and we have our eyes closed and I'm not going to embarrass you at all. But I just want to know if the Lord's moving and working right here within our body and in our midst. If you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand just where you're at right now? Is there anyone here tonight that would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior? I see your hand. Is there anyone else in here? I see your hand. Is there anyone else? For those that raise their hands and if you're on the radio or the internet, God bless you. I can't see you, but I know who can see you. God can see you and He sees your heart. If you'd like to receive Jesus as your substitute, then pray a prayer, something like this to God. God, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your perfection. I am the reason why your son had to die on the cross. He took my pain. He took my shame. He carried all of it because He loved me. Father, I receive Jesus as my Savior. I give all of my unrighteousness and I with mercy ask for your righteousness in my life 
Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for me and to wash me with his blood, white as snow. I pray that you would give me power to walk worthy of you, God, every day of my life. God, give me the power to overcome the sin that can so easily trip me up. And God, let me be an example to those around me. Day by day, help me love you more and know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.